difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Genevieve Kosky, Tasha Robinson, and Keith Phipps. Today, I'm happy to report that the stars have aligned in my two favorite things, the movies and basketball, have finally come together on one Next Picture Show podcast. Over the next two weeks, we'll be setting picks, dropping dimes, and floating insights straight into the bottom of the net. We may occasionally dunk on each other, too. Trash talk is not only allowed, but encouraged. Awesome. Scott, you are a slow, white, geeky chump. That's the spirit, Tasha. And while I work on a blistering comeback, why don't you take it to the hole? Sure. The quick and dirty new Steven Soderbergh movie High Flying Bird was dropped on Netflix in early February. And in true Soderbergh form, he's made a basketball movie with virtually no basketball in it. Instead, he focuses on the wheeling and dealing of a sports agent during a lockout that's keeping his players from getting their paychecks and his agency from getting commissions. His bold solution to try to work outside the dictates of a professional league calls to mind the Venice Beach hustlers of Ron Shelton's 1992 comedy White Men Can't Jump, starring Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson as gifted players who are great at juking and talking people out of their money, but not as skilled at holding on to it. Tasha, your mama is so supportive of you and your efforts that I wouldn't be surprised if you were incredibly successful as a result. Sick burn, Scott. Uh, I should really stop getting my your mama jokes from McSweeney's. (laughs) Oh, well. This week, we'll look at White Men Can't Jump and its take on friendship, race, and the culture of street basketball. Then next week, we'll bring in High Flying Bird and talk about the efforts of professional ballers to exercise their own brand of freelance enterprise. Oh, Tasha, that shit was just too easy. No, 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 no. That shit is too easy. Too easy. No, no, no. It's too easy. Fuck it. Let's just go to a clip. (laughs) Oh, it is hard work being this good. It's not about black. I don't mean to brag, but I'm the greatest. That's because you never saw me. It's not about white. Honey, I'm home. How much money did you make today? I missed you too. I'm sorry, honey. It's about green. I want to find out how good you are, chump. I'm your white shadow. I have a business proposal for you, as if you don't mind hustling. What kind of hustle? Five hundred dollars, baby, and you can pick my teammate. Give him the chump. You mean play basketball? Hey, pretty man, I got something for you. Shut your anorexic, malnutrition, tapeworm having, overdose, Dick Gregory, Bahamian diet drinking ass up. Give me my money. I see you hustle. Hey, I never use those goofy white mother. Hey, who you calling goofy white mother? You, you. Five hundred divided by two. How much do you love me? I love you, Infinity. Oh, Billy, you're so stupid. You should have said I love you, Infinity, plus Infinity. We shoot you, Billy, but first we want the money. There are rules 
Mr. Hustlin, there's an ethics involved. Yeah, that you wouldn't know a damn thing about. <laughs> Will you explain to this Gladys Knight and the pimps? It's pips! The pips! Winning and losing is all one big organic lobby. I hate it when you talk like that. You got that big Z in your fro, man. What are you, the black Zorro? What are you doing? I'm doing two things. What? I'm making them mad. Most guys don't play good when they're mad. Look, you know you're embarrassing me. That's what you're doing. Yeah, well, that's the other thing I'm doing. I only have four words for you. White men can jump. Sometimes when you win, you really lose. And sometimes when you lose, you really win. And sometimes when you win or lose, you actually tie. And sometimes when you tie, you actually win or lose. Winning and losing is all one big organic globule from which one extracts what one needs. These are the words of Gloria Clementi, the tempestuous sage played by Rosie Perez in White Men Can't Jump. And they are also the words of Ron Shelton, who sees sports as one big organic globule from which he can extract comedy, romance, and a little bit of philosophy. Shelton's experiences as a minor league ball player informed the wonderful details of farm club life in his 1988 breakthrough film, Bull Durham, but his perspective on failure is what sets him apart. Where other sports movies are about inspirational figures and miraculous comebacks, his movies are about men whose personal shortcomings prevent them from making it big. Bull Durham ends before the season is even over, with Kevin Costner's journeyman catcher quietly retiring after helping a more talented younger player make the bigs. Shelton's great Tin Cup ends with Costner again as a never-was golfer wrapping up a tournament run with an epic meltdown that seems like a loss, but is really a win. And White Men Can't Jump ends with the street ball triumph that seems like a win, but is really a loss. In any sport, there are plenty of never-wases, athletes who tether themselves to dreams of professional glory, but didn't have the talent or the temperament or the good fortune to make it all the way. When Costner's catcher talks about his brief stint in the majors on the team bus in Bull Durham, his teammates gather around to hear stories of baseball cathedrals where new balls are used for batting practice. Most of them are not going to see even that much action, but this is all they've ever thought about doing, so what could possibly be their plan B? In White Men Can't Jump, we don't learn the backstory of Sidney Dean, the preternaturally confident streetball king, played by Wesley Snipes, but we do discover that Billy Hoyle, the sharpshooting geek, played by Woody Harrelson, did some college hoops in Louisiana. It doesn't seem like he was scouted. Perhaps he didn't even finish school. Whatever the case, he didn't make it. And so now, Sidney and Billy are working the courts like Paul Newman in The Hustler, running a con where Sidney pretends like Billy's a stranger and has his opponents choose anyone around to be his teammate. They invariably choose Billy because he's a goofy-looking white guy they assume they can run off the court. The scam works, but there's no honor among thieves in this world, so Sidney has no moral reservations about running his own con on Billy and taking him for every dime. And Billy, who's terrible with money, finds his own ways to blow his newfound winnings, like betting Sidney that he can dunk a basketball. One of the grace notes of White Men Can't Jump is his attention to the practicalities of the hustle, which often fall to Sidney and Billy's significant others. Sidney's wife Rhonda, played by Tyra Farrell, and Billy's girlfriend Gloria, who's hard at work studying for her own dream of appearing on Jeopardy. There's a sense that both men love basketball too much to leave it behind, but only Sidney has the skills to do something else for money, serving as a contractor on various home construction projects. Billy has no other skills and can't get beyond his current cycle of losing any money he wins and begging for second chance after second chance from Gloria, who loves him but also considers him a project she might eventually have to abandon. The moral of Ron Shelton's movies is those who take from the sport are better off than those who let the sport take from them. Costner's characters in Bull Durham and Tin Cup never come close to realizing their ambitions as athletes, 
but they have the good sense to appreciate the wisdom, friendship, and love they've gained from their experiences, and they're content to leave the dream behind. Sidney Dean seems like he's getting close to that moment, too. He and Rhonda want to move away from Vista View Apartments, where there ain't no vista, there ain't no views, and there sure as hell ain't no vista of no views. Basketball is a means to an end for him, and there's a sense that he'll find his way there. Billy Hoyle, on the other hand, knows no other life but the hustle. For him, a win is almost always a loss in disguise, because it's the precursor to a mistake that he can't stop making. He's a lovable loser, but in the end, he's not just playing the chump, he is the chump. Hey, you ain't gonna see $5,000, you may see 5000 feet. Do you ever shut up? Do you ever shut the fuck up? What the fuck are you worried about? I'm in a zone, man. I'm in a fucking zone. Would you relax? I'm in a zone. Billy, it is one thing to embarrass me, right? It's another motherfucking thing to piss these guys off that we have to play against. They're just playing fucking stupid, man. Yeah, listen to your teammate, Buckethead. You're going way past stupid into a whole new category. It's called suicide, chump. Hey, chump, call me chump all day, bad boy. I'm in a fucking zone. Fuck you, man. Get over here, man. Fuck you. What the fuck is up with you? What are you worried about? I'm in a zone, man. I'm in a fucking zone. They're pissed off. I'm in a zone. Billy, this is not about black and white. This is about money. This is about green. You got that? Look, man, I need this five grand. And I am not about to let you blow this for me. No fucking way. So, Keith, Genevieve, Tasha, I've made the mistake as an adult to befriend nerds instead of jocks. So all of you are approaching white men can't jump without much affection for the sport. But perhaps being sports averse gives you a perspective that I don't have. So let's hear it. What do you think of this movie? Keith Phipps. You know, it's weird. When I saw this movie at the time, I was like, I don't know. I, I wasn't that into it. But but I saw it again. I, I, this movie's great. I, I really enjoyed it this time around. And and just, you know, sort of the language and, and the, the sense of this environment where these guys were thriving and, and this sort of like the treacherous ground in which they did their best work, but also was going to destroy them. And just the language of it just uh, it shows so good. And Scott, you'll appreciate me appreciating this. Which is so much of the, you know, how much Harrelson and Snipes did their own basketball in this. I mean, it, there's times where you think he's going to cut away because there's no way they're going to, you know, do that shot themselves. And they don't. And then, like, there's a couple of shots where it's like, well, that's obviously a double because we're not seeing his face. And then we'll turn around and it'll be Harrelson or Snipes. And, like, these guys really immerse themselves in how to get this done in order to make the movie. I was, I was very impressed by that. And, and yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed revisiting this. Yeah, I mean, I think you would probably say that Snipes is a little undersized. For somebody who can dunk. <laughs> though, though, Did they like set up a trampoline or something? Yeah, or he's a, he's a little short, but but uh, but you know you can be short and explosive on the court, so he's he's convincing in that respect. Uh, what about uh, what about y'all? I had pretty much the exact same experience as Keith. When I saw this in theaters when it came out, I walked away from it just just kind of squirmy, like squirmy about its frankness about race, squirmy about its frankness about sexuality and the like men and women and possibly the differences between them. It just seemed to me that it addressed all of these things in a way I wasn't used to seeing them addressed and it made me very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And watching it again from the perspective of having seen a lot more movies that handle all of these things a lot worse <laughs> yeah. and living in a culture that often doesn't want to address them at all, I was like, this is really refreshing. I don't necessarily agree with everything that has to say about those topics, but I'm really impressed by how unconventional it is in the ways it addresses them and just how kind of frank and fearless it is. Mm -hmm. But even more so than that, 
I think being sports averse means I have not watched hundreds or thousands of hours of basketball. So watching the athleticism that is involved in these games, like watching these two actors like do their own stunts, do their own sports, as Keith says, is just impressive. And watching the energy of, of the game uh, as it is played in this particular case, you know, that just kind of rough and ready street ball where people have their hands all over each other. And it's kind of how much fouling can you get away with <laughs> yeah. without actually offending anybody uh i'm just i'm so impressed by the energy of this movie the energy of the banter the explosiveness of the writing like the looseness of the both the performances on the court and just the verbal performances Mm -hmm. i ended up digging this a lot this time around oh good to hear it Uh, genevieve i'm the newbie here i have not seen this movie before and scott i have to thank you and more importantly my fiance steve has to thank you for suggesting this pairing because i got to give him the gift of watching white (laughs) men can't jump with him (laughs) which i think is you know uh, won me points through the end of the year at least he is a huge basketball fan and this was a movie that he really liked growing up so it was fun to experience it with someone who had a lot of affection for it but had also kind of forgotten a lot of the particulars of it as I experienced it for the first time and I agree with pretty much what's been said here uh, in terms of the energy the banter I was kind of surprised how much there is to do not with basketball in this movie and how much time is spent off the courts and I admit I had a little bit of a trouble wrapping my head around that and particularly the relationship between Billy and Gloria and the whole mobsters after them storyline it was just like Stooky brothers yeah the Stooky brothers um maybe it's just because I wasn't expecting it or it, it just felt a little out of place and you know like a little removed from the heart of the movie which is those scenes on the court and sort of the ecosystem of street ball you know and there's this tournament element but there, there's this, all these little cast of characters and I, I really liked spending time in that part of this movie that I was a little disappointed that you know we spent so much time away from it but you know it sounds like maybe those parts of the movie perhaps improve on second viewing I just love Rosie Perez in this I do I do and I think that they're I think that relationship is pretty sexy you know like I think yeah. their scenes together are like have a, they have a lot of chemistry both of them together yeah and it ended correctly if it had ended any other way I think I would have hated that relationship <laughs> but uh, oh. th- it ended with her walking away and her actually walking away just oh, that, makes that it work is, in hindsight that scene is so brilliant I, 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 we're, f- we're fast forwarding all the way to the end here but if we're just going to go with the flow <laughs> my favorite single moment in the movie is that last scene with the two of them in, in Gloria where Billy is pitching this last score this one score and he's it's his usual thing and it's just this one last thing and you in the look on Wesley Snipes face he knows mm-hmm. exactly what's going to happen he knows that this is a mistake that his friend is making and it, 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 the look is just such of such kind of sadness and pity for what he realizes is, is going to happen but, but but that billy is just too much of adult to really pr- understand but know? then at the same time he doesn't interfere yep. he knows that this is the wrong choice and he knows that he could say something and stop it but he needs for them to go forward with the plan for the sake of his own relationship and his own future and one of the things i think is so daring about this movie is the way it's sets the two of them up is just in every single one of these matches, their goals only partially align at best. And you you have a, a question coming up about their friendship. I feel like they're not friends. They're mm. partners 
in literally in crime and their partners in the game. But I, what fascinates me about this film is that they're never exactly quite friends and they're never exactly quite aligned. And in this sequence at the end, he sees that Billy is doing something that will ruin his life. And he kind of bites his lip because he's like, I maybe I could do something about this, but I'm not willing to do it at the expense of my own life. I think you're right, Tasha, but could he have done anything about it? I mean, is Billy capable of change? Because I left the movie thinking... He's probably not. Oh, I agree with you. I don't think he necessarily could have fixed Billy or made that relationship like workable long term, but he could have chosen to not be the proximate cause. He could have said, you know, I'll find another way. I'll find another partner. We'll do this in a different fashion. And he chooses to not. He chooses to go forward with it. It's I'm a with... tough situation for him to be in, though, because he, I think he cares about his friend, but he himself is in a really bad spot and needs this money and needs this action and needs Billy to come through for him as a friend and as a partner. And so uh, it's at least a tough a tough choice it's not that i maybe maybe he is selfish about it but he's he also stands to lose a great deal if if he can't convince his friend to come out with him i think it's just that there's so much in films especially at films of this era including films about sports about the the magical black man trope yeah i was going to skip ahead to scott's other question about the film's racial dynamics so i know i know right where you're going we're just we're on. just going to address <laughs> all of your questions before you can even ask them but yeah it would be so common in a movie of this era for you know the black guy to kind of like step down in order to help the white guy to like bury his own needs and his own ambitions and here they're equal characters of equal needs and equal ambitions and over and over and over you see one of them like pushing their needs above the other one and making sparks fly and those are they're fascinating sparks yeah i mean i think this is something you touched on tasha when i asked you about the film is the the candor of it is so exciting and fun i mean the, the fact that it, this racial dynamic is front and center and something that we're, we have to confront and think about i mean that's kind of the refreshing sort of conversation that we want movies so badly to have you know and even when those conversations are flawed as they are at times in this film you know at least all that stuff is out there and it's kind of like you can kind of wrestle with it and it feels healthy in a way well it's also like kept pretty isolated within this world of sports and like basketball uh, especially like it's you know things it's saying like explicitly about race are kept pretty much in the realm of basketball and the expectations of what people of different races can do there. So I think that actually helps to make it more specific like that because you don't risk any sort of overly broad or generalized statements or, you know, wading into murkier territory by biting off more than you can chew in, in, in these discussions. I think you're so, right. It definitely lets it be a microcosm and then any sort of thing you want to take to a, the larger world, you can. Right. We're just so used to seeing racial tension in films as either ignored or fixed in some way by the end of the movie, <coughs> Green Book, or <laughs> as just deeply, deeply fraught, you know, mm-hmm. very dangerous for whoever is is on the minority side of any given confrontation. You know, uh, Woody Harrelson makes the, the point about, you know, white people don't go down to Crenshaw. He's afraid of getting jumped or hurt because he knows he's going to be outnumbered. And then, you know, in other movies, it's the, the black person in the white environment that's in physical danger at all times. And here, the racial tension is present and it's acknowledged. It, it comes up all the time verbally, but there's never a sense that it's a huge, big, dangerous thing or that it threatens to, to tip society over or that people are going to die as a result. It's just an acknowledged part of life that is not like a huge, overwhelming part of life. It's not the only story. It's just, you know, it's an acknowledged part of the story. And again, I find that really refreshing. Though you do have that kind of convention of films of this 
era where if you do venture into the projects and you're with you know primarily african-american community you're you know going to be threatened with a knife or a gun or something Mm -hmm. like that i mean though the film teases that in a kind of a fun way you know that having him selling sell his gun (laughs) try to stick up try to stick up the guy get called on it that's that uh sell his gun now you're robbing me i love that line but so it's got it's got a little bit of that element to it too but but um, but then you have the the white mobsters you know at the other end of that in like the more traditionally white sphere of you know east coast mobsters or no they're they're from louisiana they're east East coast aren't they 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 seem like they're from jersey but they seem I think he played basketball in. I think he went to college in Louisiana. I did not get the sense at all that the the, the, the two they of were them from Louisiana. Came, yeah, they I mean, they are because at the end they, they say that we can show our faces at Tipitina's again, and Tipitina's is a famous club in New Orleans. Yeah, oh, okay. yeah, and I think there was I think, I think there was Italians. a Louisiana a, a license plate too on the van, and I, I did have a moment of wait, what when I saw that? Okay. I guess you just associate Rosie Perez with being like the most New York person imaginable. <laughs> Scott, I didn't get to watch this with an uh, A-sports ball expert who mm-hmm. knows everything about the, the ball of I sports. I can pick up most of what's going on in this game. You know, it's the, the action, the physical action of basketball is very clear. Mm-hmm. The rules are very clear. You can feel, like, which way any given game is going because everything is so, like, emotionally laid out. Uh, and most of the, the terms, you know, go into the hole, uh, getting on the D, like, yeah. which means D-N-O. something very different these, way, <laughs> these days. Yeah. All of these things I could pick up from context. The one that kept baffling me, though, was, all right, what's a pick? Okay, a pick is a move where you free a player by standing still next to the person who's defending him. And so if you if you set a pick against someone, uh, the the player can get around the person who's guarding them because the defender is going to run into you. So you've set that pick. Gotcha. And then and then they have something called the pick and roll, which is that the person who sets the pick. Once the pick is set, rolls towards the basket, then they they might be open for a for a shot. Uh, picks are very effective because they usually re- result in defenders switching, and when you're dealing with like a taller player and a shorter player, that can create mismatches and stuff too. So that's setting the pick. It's very hard to set picks in a two on two game though, because basically one person has the ball and the other one is running around. So like setting a pick is a complicated thing, but that's how you kind of free yourself up in basketball. That is pretty interesting, but I, I really appreciate the degree to which this movie is made without anybody explaining. There's no point where somebody's like, all right, here's the rules of street ball. Here's yeah. the rules we play under. They don't have to lay anything out, but even somebody who doesn't really know much about the game can follow everything that goes on in this movie. And I mean, it's, it's clever. I mean, it does assume all these things. I mean, like, for example, unlike regular basketball, when you score... You get to go again. So uh, the other team doesn't get to go. It gets checked to you, and they say check, check. That's kind of like that's to make sure that both sides are ready. That's what's called checking the ball. And then if if a, if the ball hits the rim and a defender gets it, they have to take the ball back behind the free throw line before they can start playing again. You can't just grab a rebound and then put it up yourself. That doesn't work unless the shot is an air ball. Then you can pick it up and score without bringing it back. So the, 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 this the, is like a repeat of everything that Steve told me while we I were watching so, together. This is, this is, I am so excited by this conversation. Um, and so, there's going to be nothing to talk about with High Flying Bird because there's no basketball. No, it's like oh, a bunch of nerds well, in boardrooms. Okay, well, well, while we're on this this topic, Scott is the only person here who regularly watches basketball and has a context for what is good basketball. You know, Tasha mentioned how cool it was to see Harrelson and Snipes playing a lot of their own ball here. What are your opinions on how 
good the the skills we see on display here yeah, are you are you watching are. this like the way a musician watches oh, people God. in movies just like pounding their hands <laughs> on the, in the same place on a keyboard to pretend to play piano oh no i think it's very persuasive and exciting these scenes and i what i like about them is the emphasis on the difference between streetball and regular basketball which is a little more formal uh there is this issue and and it's explicit in the film about style style matters a great deal to sydney sydney wants to play with flair and that's a big that's a streetball thing i mean you want you want to not just win a game you want to humiliate your opponents you want to you want to do things that are you know exciting and impressive and kind of funky you know (laughs) Uh, and 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 of course that's not at all billy's approach to the game he wants to just play it straight up and he gets furious with with sydney when sydney does something fancy rather than just do the simplest easiest way to score because he he risks them losing games by having a lot of flair so that's this becomes this like cultural difference that figures into the uh movie and becomes almost again also a white black thing as well because it's like it's epitomized kind of in the dunk to dunk a ball is a very stylish thing to do and it was not it didn't really become a part of professional basketball until like what the 70s or something or, yeah i mean uh that's true that's yeah true. I, I think I, I listened to a podcast about that once <laughs> yeah <laughs> and also dunking is you know something as this movie plays up that white men are expected not to be able to do so the the whole this whole style versus i don't know what you want to call it fundamentals or, or mm-hmm. whatever discussion is baked into this central idea of Billy wanting to prove that he can dunk and that he, you know, he has that ability. He just doesn't want to do it. The whole thing about him not being able to dunk and just his approach to bets in general is really interesting to me because of that dynamic. Mm-hmm. You know, he lays out the idea of you would rather lose if you, and look good mm-hmm. than win if you look bad and I'm the other way around. And he lays that out as a racial dynamic. But it's really just the difference between, you know, his character and, and Snipes' character. What interests me about it, though, is that his whole I can totally dunk thing does come down to ego. Like it, it, he does need to win. He does need to be able to do this one flashy move. And it's obviously very important to him, not just that he be able to do it, but that, you know, that Snipes character uh, understands that he can do it, that he acknowledges he can do it. And it becomes a huge ego thing with him. And it's a weird conflict, just given what he lays out about everything that's true about him and then what we see is actually true about him. It's just this kind of like general undercore of the movie where realizing (laughs) Genevieve just saluted general General undercore, undercore. (laughs) general undercore of the movie is this conflict between who he thinks he is and who we see him to actually be. One thing that I find interesting about the style question and about how it relates to race is that you could almost see this film as an implicit criticism of a movie like Hoosiers, which is all about Gene Hackman in an all-white, you know, corn-fed underdog team. And, and the way they're gonna, they win games is through fundamentals, is through the team making five passes before anyone takes a shot. You know, all of this just, you know, that's how they're going to beat the city team at the end, which, of course, is, you know, a, a, a lot of black players that they end up beating at the, uh, end, of the end of the movie who don't play the, the good fundamental basketball and lose. And that kind of coded racism sort of has, has fed into perceptions of the NBA and of basketball in general that white players play good fundamental basketball and black players are show-offs with no discipline. And I think that it's an idea that Shelton 
is trying to play with and, and undercut as much as he can, uh, which I appreciate. And I think that kind of leads to a question uh, that I have for the group, but for Keith, who's seen, I think, a lot of these Shelton films, is just how would you describe his approach to the genre and, and how it functions in this film? You know, I think if you look at something like this or Bull Durham or Tin Cup, which is a movie I need to revisit because I think I underrated it at the time, you know, generalizations just don't work in any of them because it's all about peculiarities of, of a single player, of a single person, uh, and and like the individual character strengths and character flaws that either make them a great player or, or as more often the case in Shelton movies, stop them making it. It's the individual person that's held back and not anything else about them. So I think, you know, I, in, in some ways, I think in this movie, you see those um, you know, stereotypes playing out, but they're both such well-developed characters that that's just part of who they are. It's not like their defining trait. It, it's, it's, it's something that they've developed. It's not something that that's true of, of everything they, they represent. You know, I would just say, and I, and I said this in the keynote, that Shelton, I think, has a very healthy understanding of what sports are like for most people who have this dream and who chase it as far as it goes. I mean, to be somebody who makes it from high school to a college team, that's rare. To make it from college to any kind of pro team, pro level is extraordinarily rare and then make it to the pros is just rarer still and so at some point along that route for most players that dream stops and what do you do how do you turn that loss into a win um and i think that's something that that he's really concerned with in 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 all three of these movies in in bull durham and white men can jump in in, in ten cup is just like the player the people who are able to kind of find perspective be able to process the fact that they that they're not going to make make it all the way that it, it need to find some level on which they can be happy anyway and i think it's a li- it's a learned experience for ron shelton who who was a minor league player himself and uh, and i think it also is a great commentary on all other sports movies which are not about that which are about being a champion and triumphing on the on the field i think i just always appreciate his perspective on sports i have a, i treasure Ron Shelton's sports movies. <laughs> well, it, it's like you can see that there's a love for sport at the core of these movies, but there's not a romanticizing of sports. And like as someone who is, you know, apathetic about sports uh, at, at best, a lot of sports movies don't work for me because they do overly romanticize whatever sport they're they're portraying and maybe heighten it beyond the realm of where someone who doesn't share that connection can connect to it. And what I liked about White Men Can't Jump and specifically its basketball scenes is that a love of the game does come through, but it's removed from any sort of grand ambition or big ideals or romanticism, like I said, you know, um, that you might get in something like like Hoosiers. The triumphs that you do have are, are not broadcast. They're not public. I mean, who cares? You right. Know? Yeah. I mean, that was the thing about like Costner. There's a point in, in Bull Durham where he breaks the minor league record for home runs like all time. But no, who get, no, he cares. Yeah. I mean, like, like Susan Sarandon cares, and they celebrate this triumph. But it's a private celebration; no one cares, and nobody's going to remember him at all. I think also that's part of why these films have appeal beyond hardcore fans of their sport too. And I think that is a lot truer to the way most of us experience life, frankly, than a movie in which someone wins the big game and, and fireworks go off and the credits roll. It is small triumphs and many more defeats and and uh, 
not always, you know, getting as far as you want to with things. At the same time, I feel like one of the things that Shelton does that's just really distinctive here is it feels like he's actively playing off against that romanticism and against that feeling in sports movies of sports being the most important thing by kind of emphasizing how unhappy these guys are because they they can't just enjoy the sport. Like they're really mm. good at it, but they're we almost never see them actually enjoying being good at it. When they when they're when they're beating each other uh, there seems like a little momentary mean joy, but it never leads any place happy. And most of the time, they're just they're both angry. They're angry about what the other person is doing. They're afraid that they're going to lose. And there's just no joy in the game. So often sports movies are about, you know, the, the purity of the game, the, the joy of being good at, at something, the joy of throwing yourself into something, and the joy of winning. And they're just they're never they never seem happy when they win the tournament or when they when they finally when they go out, beat the guys at the end like that didn't that you don't think they're that that makes them happy to be out there doing playing and... i mean we well, see so them brief. we see them win the tournament and no they don't seem particularly joyous i mean they've spent that entire tournament sniping yeah. at each other no pun intended yeah. they've spent that entire tournament picking at each other no pun intended it's <laughs> it's the culmination of a bunch of like miserablest trash talk and abusing each other. And <laughs> I, I think I just feel like that tournament is epitomized by the judges being like, give them the check and let's oh, get out so of here. Good. Oh my <laughs> it's God. A great moment. Um, so uh, one other thing I wanted to touch on in this film is Billy and Gloria's relationship, which takes up a pretty solid chunk of the movie. Um, what, were you persuaded by it? And did it make sense to you that Gloria would stand by him and give him this many second chances. I am so on board with everything Genevieve said earlier <laughs> about this is it's a charming, sexy, believable relationship that comes to the correct conclusion. And if it had ended differently, I would have been pretty angry with this movie. Um, but as it is, again, it's so distinctive because she walks away. It reminds me so much of the dynamic between Jason Robards and Tom Hulse in Parenthood, if you remember that, mm-hmm. where Robards is playing Hulse's father and is trying to get him out of a, a pretty nasty jam where he owes some gangster some money. And he keeps giving him second chances. And in the end, he offers him this like, you know, you're going to come work for me. You're going to work it off. We're going to talk to them and make a deal. And you're going to have to work really hard, but we can get out of this. And Hulse is like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Or I've got this great scam <laughs> that you could invest in. And Robarts has to let him go, you know, has to understand this is not a relationship you can fix. Mm-hmm. And it's really sweet to see Perez going through that moment and, and you know, being able to say, like, I love you, but this is a relationship that can't be fixed. It is not yeah. hard to believe that she finds him charming, that, you know, the two of them have a great dynamic. And they're also their bond is cemented by this shared trouble that they have. Mm-hmm. And as soon as that shared trouble no longer exists, she's able to kind of look at it and say, you know, we could walk away from this trouble. You're actively trying to pull us back into it. I can't do that. <laughs> yeah, I, I bought it as a relationship that lasted exactly as long as it did and would not last a second longer. <laughs> I mean, they're both they're both young and attractive and in love and obviously very into each other. But I think you know, the idea that, you know, you don't have to live this way forever is is very appealing to her at that moment. I, I think another aspect that makes it believable is it does take her winning all these all this Jeopardy money to be able to to do that to walk away and because like Tasha said they are for most of the movie united by this shared trouble and they are dependent on each other you know both financially and like they're kind of alone in this city that they move together they're being hunted you know t- together and I think we see some of the energy that that gives their relationship sort of a not quite 
Bonnie and Clyde, but, you know, a, a dangerous, sexy energy that informs their relationship. And then once that danger is removed, then she not only has the money to walk away, the energy connection between them has maybe somewhat decreased as well with that. I like that it's a movie in which money matters, which is too often when you get, you know, in sports or romance movies, it's, you know, uh, bigger things will triumph over money, but it really won't in this. They're, they're in trouble if they don't have it. And they live miserably or, you know, they're, they're, they're too, kind of too young and into each other to notice how miserably they're living. But it's going they're going to catch on at a certain time that they that uh, they can't keep living in, in motel rooms like this. And that's the future that the ways of it. And same with uh, with Sydney and his, his wife, too. It's like this is this is a bad situation they're in. And, and no matter how much they believe in each other, whatever you usually get in, in romantic movies or sports movies, it, it's ultimately not it's literally not going to pay, pay the rent. Now, that said, we really have to talk about how Gloria gets out of her fix because, well, two things. One, I don't think that plot beat makes a damn bit of sense. Like, a security guard got me on the lot, therefore I'm on Jeopardy now. Like, how does that work? I feel like there's a scene missing there where she, having gotten on the lot, manages to sweet talk a producer into booking her yeah. or something. Because it is, it, as it is. I don't see that scene, though. As it is, it really, I well, immediately. Said, plus, you get the best cut of the movie, which is which is him seeking that shot, and you're immediately on Jeopardy. It's like, it just, it makes boom, no, and then no cut, sense, And then Scott. you get the Jeopardy theme. I love it. Even if it did make any damn sense, like, I, I don't know. I would like to see that scene, because to me, that scene is, like, directly something out of Fish Called Wanda, where you just see Jamie Lee Curtis, like, hoist up her boobs a little, and then go sweet talk people into things. I, like, I feel like that could have been a good scene for Gloria. Yeah. But... Regardless, part of the emotional climax of this movie is watching somebody play Jeopardy for like 10 minutes. It's a really long scene. And oh, so I love good, it. It's though. really bizarre. I, I, I knew all the foods that began with Q. I was so excited. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, you wanted yeah, your $80,000. Three, <laughs> three things I love in that scene. Foods that begin with the letter Q. Her pronunciation of Mount Vesuvius. <laughs> Mount Vesuvius. <laughs> and then, and then I, 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 as a character detail, I love the fact that she doesn't know anything about sports. Because it says so much about that relationship, doesn't it? I mean, like, that is what we perceive as Billy's whole world as being sports. And so there is another level separate from that in which she finds something in him that she likes and that they're able to share. And it has absolutely nothing to do with her being into what he is most passionate about, uh, which is which is actually my my marriage, by the way, in a nutshell. <laughs> uh, so, so I kind of appreciated that very specific gap in her knowledge. I see thematically how the Jeopardy thing is, you know, her, it's her going to the hole. Like it's her <laughs> showing off the skill that she spent the whole movie it's honing. It's the big game. <laughs> it is. It's the big game. She's the underdog and she walks in there and wins and it's a, a big deal. I understand how the puzzle piece fits with all the basketball stuff just as a, a sort of like rhyming but mismatched narrative. But as cinema, watching her play Jeopardy to me after all of the energy of those games is really boring. Oh, I loved it. I think all movies should have a Jeopardy oh, no. break in the middle. Yeah, I like it too. <laughs> all right. I, I am as usual outnumbered. Democracy. Man, I'm just, I'm going to get up the D here and uh, try to wait, wait. try to D my position. Wait, none of this is, none of, that's not the correct use of any of that. No, no she, she meant daily double, D for daily double. Is that what you meant? No. Sure, it's exactly what I meant. What, I, but now I'm really bored with listening to me play Jeopardy. Now I, I want to throw up more bad sports ball uh, analogies just to watch Scott Twitch. Uh, but before we cut out, we, we talked a bunch about Gloria. Can we talk a little bit about uh, Rhonda? I mean, she's a, she doesn't have as nearly as much time in the movie, um, though I do love 
I love the scene where Gloria drags Billy over to their apartment to get their the money back and and Ron is like, You're not getting any of that money and I, I appreciate how um, that does not develop into the fight you expect and how there's this, I think, mutual understanding and re- respect of what has gone on and why, what Rana's rationale is for not giving up that, that money. And Gloria gets it. You know, I, I love that. Yeah, the consideration that they have for each other while being completely firm about money is is just kind of hilarious. But I, I also just, I really like Tyra Farrell's performance here. I like how how hard and determined and, and focused and intelligent she is and how completely she controls his Sydney while still not being like a, a ball buster. Like the, the movie has every sympathy with her position and the actions that she takes. You can see why she is the way she is and, and why she wants what she wants. And it seems reasonable. Mm-hmm. And I think their relationship, you also get to see a sex scene between them, which again, like... I don't know. So much is being said right now about how if Beale Street could talk, eroticizes black bodies and how unusual that is in American cinema. But they have a sex scene that's really pretty, pretty erotic. Uh, and it just, again, feels unusual for the time. Yeah. All right. Well, on on, uh, on that steamy note, <laughs> uh, uh, we'll certainly talk a lot more about white men can't jump uh, on our next show when we bring in High Flying Bird. But for now, we'll uh, cut to feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Genevieve, do you want to get us started? Sure. Uh, Luke from Australia writes, In the introductory spiel for the show, you mentioned that part of the premise of the next picture show is to look at the way films from the past can shape our thoughts on a film in the present. But is the inverse also true? Each time you Yanks decide to remake another beloved foreign language film, there are the outraged and the people who argue that it's okay because the original will always be there. It can't be damaged by this. But I'm not so sure. The attempts at satire in Velvet Buzzsaw are hoarse, ham-fisted, and more hilarious than any of its intentional jokes about the art world. And for me, they are so bad that they retroactively ripple back and sully Nightcrawler in comparison. At the time, I saw the film as more of a straight thriller with a black irony underlying it. Maybe a little broad and a little blunt in its approach to the cable news cycle, but ultimately the character work was a focus and it won me over. Alas, it's hard now not to see the satire as Gilroy's primary goal, that Nightcrawler was shaped from the same sneering impulse, and it feels like a lesser work because of it. Me Too and other such personal problems aside, do you feel that a director's later work can make a lie of your initial enthusiasm? Are there any times you can think of when you've realized what a director's bag of tricks really holds and had it detract from an earlier love? Or is that initial reaction sacred? I feel like this should be feedback from our M. Night Shyamalan episode. <laughs> well, that's exactly what I was going to say, is that he could be talking about Shyamalan, which I don't think, here, here's the thing, I don't think it gives, makes your enthusiasm a lie. I think it does make you kind of have to reconsider it. But I don't know. I I, I, I don't want to go too far down that way of thinking because you know i listen to a lot of a lot of music and uh, from people who whose new albums i, I don't really care that much for but I, their old albums uh, aren't diminished by that like i mean I, I don't think the fact that a bigger bang exists means exile on main street isn't as good as it used to be you know but it does it does cast things in a different light i i can't really see that about this particular point about nightcrawler i, I remember nightcrawler you know still being quite effective and and what was satirical about it, not overwhelming the rest of it. 
all that being said, I have found my enthusiasm for certain directors um, and you know musicians' work uh, greatly dimmed by the Me Too stuff. So it's not like it can never happen, and it's just and it's just something we you know things just exist in a, in a vacuum to be appreciated, like in their you know like they're on some kind of pedestal in a museum or an art exhibition. Full circle. <laughs> but I what, do what like do you guys I do like the way that the question though frames it. Like as far as Me Too stuff, I mean that can't help but color your opinions of certain filmmakers but i do like the idea of thinking about it just in terms of aesthetics and like what is this person's deal and then you watch a f- certain filmmaker over a course of time and it's like okay you the know bag sh- of tricks that's yeah, bag of, yeah the, the bag of tricks, tricks is, I mean, that, is the line is a perfect here for line. me bag yeah. of tr- and that's and that's that's why shyamalan comes up tim uh, burton was the, the that's one exactly I what I, was I, 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 I suspected tasha would also think of tim burton here yeah and i and i think phrasing it as you know the the original film is not a lesser film for it but like you know beetlejuice is not a lesser film for all of the bad movies that tim burton has made but watching all of the bad tim burton movies makes you see like the the antic loudness and the kind of like forced whimsy and macabre humor of movies like beetlejuice like his early stuff, when you see him just echoing it over and over again, there is kind of a, a sense of diminished returns and a sense of, you know, I loved this when it was unique. I loved it when the, there was a one of these things. And now that there's 10 of these things, it does feel like it, they diminish in value. That does not make the original movie less good. It changes your your impression of it, your the way you perceive it, the way you intake it. And I think those are different things. I've had something similar happen with me with Terry Gilliam. Brazil is one of my favorite movies of all time. Mm-hmm. I really still think that even today, like what he does is distinctive and, and memorable and very much Terry Gilliam. But watching movie after movie of his that are these like anarchic kind of sloppy conglomerations of of event and like and mania and watching people like desperately try to use fantasy to contend with the real world and then have fantasy come back and slap them in the face seeing that theme articulated more sloppily and poorly in other movies does kind of make it harder to go back and look at the works of his that i love yeah, I mean, I think there's kind of a distinction to be made, though, between the bag of tricks idea and somebody who works in a particular style that they execute less effectively over time, which is more the Gilliam case. To me, the bag of tricks example for me is Alejandro Gonzalez in, in Arita, <laughs> sure. because I was among many who was quite excited by Amores Peros, which before we had the, these you know, this flood of everything is connected narratives uh, coming from him uh, a, lot, a lot of the time. It was, it seemed dynamic and, and he certainly is uh, on a technical level, very exciting. But then the seriousness, you know, then you get, you know, 21 grams and Babel and Birdman and it just, it kills you. It just like, it just feels like eating a, a thrice baked potato. <laughs> um, so uh, it's too much. Uh, and then of course, I, I don't know if you, any of you saw this, his screenwriter, Guillermo Arriaga, who wrote, who wrote the, his first few films and, uh, and also wrote a pretty good film that Tommy Lee Jones directed called uh, three, the three burials of Melchiades Estrada. Uh, he, he went on, did his own directorial debut called the burning plane did you ever see that <laughs> oh my god it's just like like a bad inarito movie without like the, the stylistic flair um in any case I, that to me is kind of the classic example of just like okay it's shtick you know and i, and I kind of fear returning to amores peros in that uh, you know or you know and i think i probably i think i reviewed 21 grams pretty 
positively too. I just think, man, I, I would see those now and think maybe they're just way, way over the top. I don't, I don't know though, Scott. I, I will say, I think, I think Birdman, which I don't like either, is a different bag of tricks. It, it's, um, it's a comedy, um, <laughs> quote unquote. Yeah. Uh, it's stylistically, it's quite different from the others. It's a different uh, realm. It's tonally, it's different. I, I don't know. I think it was him trying, trying new things i don't think it i don't think it particularly works either but i i'm not sure that's i think the example works up to that point in his career but i don't think it necessarily works for that one and for what it's worth i as much as i was disappointed by velvet buzzsaw and sort of disappointed in particular because it did seem to be kind of trying to examine you know who owns art and who owns the art world in the same way nightcrawler examined like who owns news i for me velvet buzzsaw doesn't have an impact on Nightcrawler at all. It doesn't feel like the same bag of tricks. It's it's such an, a, like a brightly colored movie. It's such a sunlit movie. It's such an, like a wild ensemble movie. Whereas Nightcrawler is, you know, so much more narrow and hard edged and driven and single character focused and single point of view focused. I don't see them as being so much alike that one detracts from the other. And like Nightcrawler has not dimmed in my estimations at all. I, thought, I kind of thought that Velvet Buzzsaw got kind of darkened quite a bit in the last half or so once it, once it gets kicks into sort of horror elements. But I, mean, I can kind of see his point, though. It does. I mean, they're not just... I, I would have guessed they were films by the same person. The attitude's the same, and, and, and the kind of the film sort of uh, descending a little bit into into darkness is the same. And obviously, Gyllenhaal is, is present in both films. So uh, I get it. I oh, I get it, those. too. I think we, all have, I think we all have those uh, problems. But uh, but we should. I want to move on to some news or some recent news. We, we the Oscars for us j- just happened a couple days ago, and uh, you know, fresh from its surprise Oscar triumph, a couple of our listeners were questioning us about Green Book. Keith, you want to take this one? Sure. Kevin writes, "I find it interesting that across the four Oscar ceremonies that have happened since you launched the podcast, side note, wow, we've actually been doing this a little while. <laughs> oh, wow. yeah. uh, uh, Green Book is the first Best Picture winner you haven't covered." Just think of the great pairing you could have done with Driving Miss Daisy. Kidding aside, what do you think of the newly minute Best Picture winner? I think we did briefly joke about doing a pairing of Green Book and Driving Miss Daisy. But uh, I think that was a a glib suggestion at best. (laughs) We do inevitably make a lot of glib suggestions that that kind of amount to, like, let's all pick on somebody who's in this podcast. Like, hey, how would you like to do this pairing of this thing we know you hate uh, and this other thing we know you hate? Hey, Genevieve, would you like to do this new horror movie and maybe pair it with this old horror movie about spiders? Like, that kind of humor. We make a lot of suggestions that we're not going to follow up on. and, And this one felt like it was in that we, we, we should emphasize too that Kevin is is not is also not seriously suggesting that we could have paired it with Driving Miss Daisy. I think there's a pretty common agreement that uh, the 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 classic uh, label does not apply to that particular movie. Um, but from what I understand, the two of you have shrewdly avoided seeing Green yep. Book. I didn't have to see it, so. I yeah, I literally just recorded a an episode of the Slash Filmcast last night where we talked a lot about this, uh, about Green Book and our reactions to it. So I may be a little burned out. But when it first came out, I avoided it because it looked like uh, the blind side. It looked mm-hmm. exactly like mm-hmm. the kind of like feel good uh, crash everything is racism was super bad and it made it makes us all very sad uh but now it's now it's better kind of movie that i hate mm-hmm. and then i started reading about how it came about and like all of the things about its ostensible subject don shirley that it deliberately either erased or consciously reversed in order to like make the 
make the other subject of the movie, the the white character, Tony Lip, look good because his son was co-writing it. Mm-hmm. And there's so much just abominable stuff that went into that story. I, I just couldn't couldn't watch it. Uh, I said something about that on Twitter and I've been inundated with people saying, you know, but it's a good movie. It's a fun movie. It's a moving movie. And like to some degree, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Like I don't care whether the aesthetics of the movie are awesome if it involves, you know, the erasure of this man's life in order to make somebody else feel good. Yeah, I mean, that that is what the movie is. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, yeah. yeah, right, Keith? Yeah, I mean, that's that's my experience of it, too. If I didn't know that, if, if, if two things weren't true, I think I would find the movie less objectionable. One, if I didn't know that about it, and two, if it hadn't been elevated to the level it is, to me... It plays, I mean, you know, great, great cast aside, it really plays like a play one week and everyone forgets about an indie movie that maybe turns up, you know, on cable a few years later. It's it's just not an exceptional movie in any way whatsoever. And like, I'm a sucker for stories of, of, of racial harmony, uh, mm-hmm. perhaps to the point where I, if this were just something that, that breezed by, I, I, I saw it once and there wasn't all this commentary about it, I might just think, oh, it's, it's. A pretty simple, simplistic, but but whatever you know, well intentioned movie. How it won Best Picture, I, I don't know. There's there's got to be a book to be written about this someday because it's 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 not a particularly good movie, and the questions of its uh, origins are you know. Don Shirley told me I should make this movie, but only after he was dead, and mm. isn't around to actually question anything. Yeah. It's a very suspect uh, claim. But, uh, you know, whatever I need to say to keep that, anything from being legally actionable or whatever, <laughs> I'll add that. Uh, and it was just disheartening to watch it kind of move on, you know, through progress through the season, even though, I don't know, did anyone really like it? I guess, my mom I guess really liked yeah, it. My, yeah. like Moms both, everywhere loved both it. Sets of in, both sets of, both my parents yeah. and my in-laws absolutely loved it. And it was it been kind of uncomfortable for me to even engage them about it so i think it was kind of definitely hit a lot of baby boomers uh white baby boomers right right, you know right right in the fields a lot of whom are in the academy so that might be your answer it's it to me and i and i felt and i had i had said from the beginning that i thought i I (laughs) thought the green book had a very strong chance of 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 winning more so than other folks seem to acknowledge because but that was a cynical uh it had won the audience (laughs) it had won the audience award at toronto and and it seemed like a certain section of the population, you know, in a certain section of the academy, uh, we're going to be really enthusiastic about it, and that's exactly what happened. But I think it, it is very much, I think, the film that you all fear, uh, mm-hmm. Genevieve and Tasha. So I don't, wouldn't necessarily... So, you know, so you're saying we're not going to do a retroactive no, Green Book episode no, to continue no, but, our but, streak but, of doing Best Picture winners? I do find it funny that, that a film that was this so much in contention for so many awards that literally showed up in your mailbox in the form of a screener with something that you all did not watch. That is, that takes some, uh, discipline. Oh, Scott, I've got a stack of like 50 screeners at home that I didn't get to. Like there are so many of them. And some of them are things that I still really want to watch because, they seem they they seem very much up my alley, but you, you can't watch everything, yeah. and yeah. it's well, weird they keep making more things. Yeah, well, and re- yeah, and remember, I got I got TV in the equation now. I got a whole oh. lot of TV to watch, so mm-hmm. my movie watching that has is... to be like uh, very strategic. I, yeah, like I I rarely go into a movie blind because I can't afford no, to right. risk wasting my time. Oh, television, <laughs> that is a that is a time suck. Yeah. Uh, I, I would I would add two more things to this. There's a very good Wesley Morris article that ran that was that he wrote in. in 
Land Before the Wind called um, Why Do the Oscars Keep Falling for Racial Reconciliation Fantasies? Read in the New York Times, where, where he's a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, he really gets into the history of this, but also the aesthetics of it. Um, he's a k- kinder, without really fully endorsing it as a classic, he's, he's kinder uh, to Driving Miss Daisy. Uh, he actually gets into to why it, why it works and, and kind of even talks about the, the S&M d- dynamics of the relationship between the two main characters, which is pretty interesting. Well, now I'm interested. And, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's good at unpacking about why some of the comedy lands in Green Book because they're well-constructed gags, but why the, you know, what's icky about them anyway. Um, so yeah, that's really worth worth your time. And the other thing is like, this is weird because I'm usually the person defending Fairly Brothers movies because I actually think their comedies, I, I like some of their later comedies a lot more than than most people. And, and uh, you know, I, I've, I watched and laughed through the Three Stooges, but but uh, this was, uh, mm-hmm. this was not, this is not. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, bo- uh, we're both big the, Stuck on You fans. Yeah, but Stuck on You, stuck on you is really underrated. Well, it's, and, it's and this sweet. Is, but, this is sweet and funny too. It just got big, big problems. Oh, terrorism has its li- has its limits, I guess. While we're calling out uh, articles about Green Book, Justin Chang's uh, write up oh, for uh, the L.A. Times under the headline uh, "Oscars 2019: Green Book is the worst Best Picture winner since Crash." I highly recommend reading that because the the headline might not draw people in. It sounds it sounds just like a you know provocative, maybe clickbaity, SEO worthy aggregation kind of headline. Uh, but the analysis of both why it won and why that's a problem um, is just really scathing. It's a really good piece of writing. It's not just a review. It's kind of an analysis of where we are as a country and as a, a very diffracted and divisive audience and how different segments of the, the country and uh, different ages and different races are going to take this movie differently and why. It's uh, just it's generally a really good piece of analysis that <laughs> Does not spare the invective it's, for it's why awesome. this movie is bad. No, this is this is. I'm I'm saying it. I'm calling it right now. This is Justin Chang's Pulitzer year. He's got. He, I think he's. I think he his work this year has been that good. I think he's he's written phenomenal piece after phenomenal piece, and this is just one of them. So well, you call the Green Book out. thing. So <laughs> yep, Green Book. Yep, Green Book. Green Book for the Oscar. Justin Chang. I got seventeen hundred bucks here. I want to put on that, and I am definitely not scamming you. But I get Genevieve as my partner. <laughs> Well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll head indoors for Steven Soderbergh's High Flying Bird, in which the gamesmanship takes place in boardrooms rather than on basketball courts. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be dining exclusively on foods that begin with the letter Q. Pizza,